Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 211. And I'm delighted this week to be joined by Michael Cashman. Oh, I've got a bit of a sore throat. Apologies. Um, Yeah, this... I only recorded this conversation um, last week, as you hear this. Exactly a week ago, in fact. And as many of you know, I, I tend to record fairly far in advance. I've got a load kind of in the bank, ready to drop. But I wanted to rush this one out because I was so moved and inspired by this conversation and by Michael's story. Um, and it felt right uh, to get out in February as it's it's LGBT history month. And Michael is a key part of that history in the UK at the very least. Uh, he he was one half of the first gay kiss on a British soap to much outrage and um, and threat and abuse. Uh, he's, he co-founded Stonewall with um, Ian McKellen and they fought tirelessly and continued to, to fight tirelessly for for better rights and better representation for the LGBT plus community. And yeah, just his story is just amazing. He's got he's got a new book out that is is in front of me as we speak. It's called One of Them from Albert Square to Parliament Square. Um because you know, he 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 rose to fame and acclaim as an actor and as said to anger as an actor and ended up becoming a member of of European Parliament. And then, yeah, a politician. And, yeah, it's, uh, as you can hear, I'm a little bit dumbstruck by it all because it's it's a hell of a story. It's got a lot of of downs, a lot of lows, but a lot of beauty. And the way Michael spoke of, of his partner, of his struggles over the years, of the conflicts he's faced, um, it was wonderful. So, yeah, I'm going to jump into this one. I should mention that the the latest issue of Pod Bible magazine has come out and the latest issue of the Pod Bible podcast has come out. So check them out. Head to speechdevelopmentrecords.com if you want to buy any merch or any of my stuff. And patreon.com slash pip. I'm recording a few podcasts at the moment. The the year has has finally started to kick off on the recording front and over at Patreon is where I preview them. I I let you know who I'm recording with I post little exclusive photos and stuff like that. It's only a dollar a month. But um, yeah, head over there if you want in on that. Um, let's get on to this. This is a hell of a conversation with with Michael Cashman. Um, I highly recommend his book, One of Them. And I think anyone who listens to this podcast will be chomping at the bit to hear more. Also, as ever, w- with these... I don't know, heavier, I guess, podcasts and more serious ones. Please share, please spread the word. Your word of mouth is uh, is absolutely key. A, a, a lot of you will know that when we have one that impacts people in the way I think this episode is going to impact people, I'll be sharing a lot of your tweets and a lot of your comments on on Facebook and stuff like that. So be vocal to to let other people know that, that this is one that is so worth listening to and i will you know as much of it as i see i will be vocally and excitedly sharing it because i said this one really it moved me man uh yeah let's get on with the podcast this is episode 311 of the distraction pieces podcast with michael cashman 
beginning indeed um i'm joined today by michael cashman how are you sir um i'm really good in the middle of uh promoting and talking about my lovely book and um just tells you how good i am yeah so the other the other day i went in and they said the final book's here and i went into bloomsbury collected it and i got a little bit emotional and came home along this street where i grew up uh, and where i'm back living and it was raining and i had the the book tucked inside my coat and as I passed the street the actual street we lived on I saw the five-year-old me and I, I I looked at the book and I just thought I've written this book and all of the amazing things I've done and I'm here and I cried and I cried and I cried beautiful um and so I'm good. I'm really good. I, I just have a, a big hole in my life, but I've just got to, got to get used to that. Yes, of course. And it's it's. it's uh, I've just started getting into the book. I've read extensive notes on it in preparation f- for this podcast. But mm. it's a hell of a a life that you've had, and a hell of a story and a journey. And we'll go we'll go all over the place in it. There's loads I want to ask you about. Mm. But the day after we confirmed this um, interview. My Twitter feed was a light with your name as a story <laughs> resurfaced, so I figured that was a good place to, to start. And it was—it's from a while ago, from the eighties, when an article from a yet to be shamed journalist called Piers Morgan, <laughs> um, and it, it was a review of an EastEnders storyline that saw your character have the first gay kiss, as described by Piers as a homosexual love scene between y- yappy puffs. Colin and Guido, which uh. even at the time feels incredibly uh, insensitive, insensitive, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or horrific. Yeah, well, to be blunt. And you see, there's a lot of stuff, particularly in this day and age, where we have to look back and go, well, of the time, so on and so forth. But this was in print. Uh, again, I saw a few people t- trying to defend it, saying he was quoting different lords or he whoever that rang you. But no. that sentence, he was not no. quoting. That and, was his... And homosexual love scene. A kiss between yeah. two men yeah. is not uh, a love scene. Yeah. If it was, people would be arrested the length and breadth of the country. It was the second gay kiss, actually. The first uh, gay kiss was in 1987. And that caused outrage. I mean, if, if we look at what was written then, in a way it was a... It was, it was a it wasn't as bad as some of the awful stuff. I'm not excusing it, but what I would say about that was it was it was pandering to prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, yuppie puffs. You, there's no need to use puffs. Uh, uh, somebody lovely tweeted, said, "What's a yuppie puff?" Um, and that, <laughs> that, that made me chuckle. Yeah. Um, but but we have to remember, and again, this is no excuse for it. This was all part of the courage of the BBC of bringing a non-stereotypical gay man into the family, into this family show, um, at a time when AIDS and HIV was depicted as, I quote, the gay plague. Mm-hmm. People read in these newspapers that Piers Morgan was writing in, like The Sun, The Mail, The News of the World, all of the others, that you could catch AIDS by sitting next to a gay person or from a glass that hadn't been properly washed or a cup. And people were stigmatised and stereotyped and, and people faced appalling 
discrimination. Some people were, were hounded out of their homes, bricks through their window. I had, Paul and I had bricks through our window. And, and for me, you have to look back and you have to say, we have moved on, but we must never forget how people treated us and how people fueled prejudice. Because going to my experience and the experience of many, when a brick comes through your window, it doesn't just happen because somebody says, picks up that brick. They are motivated by what they read day mm-hmm. after day, what they hear day after day, whether it's in their church or at work or in the pub. And, you, and we have to know the value of words and that words can liberate, but actually words can actually empower someone to take those actions uh, that can remove somebody's life uh, or inflict damage. Um, so it, uh, the journalist, Chris Godfrey, from the, uh, from the Guardian, who did the interview about me, was right to throw that up into the Twitter ether and say, do you still stand by this, Piers? Uh, I, I'm, I'm told uh, Piers Morgan apologised and said it was language of the time. But, but again, I say, OK, we move on. But we must never forget, because it's part of the history of liberation. Do we say 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz and uh, we shouldn't remember that anymore? Of course not, and I'm not making direct comparisons. But what I am saying is if we forget our history, we allow the next generation to forget it, and it's very easy, therefore, to repeat it. Yeah, I think that's that's the key part of that story resurfacing now. And what you said there of of the... Enforcement of what is reported in the media and things like that, and, and and we have a lot of arguments now when politicians or journalists or whomever else will say things that you can argue isn't explicitly racist or isn't explicitly homophobic, as Piers's was, mm. but it still adds to that strengthening of those who will pick up a brick and throw it through a window if they're feeling more and more acceptance, even if it's subtler or more cloaked yes it's still adding to that societal suggestion that that kind of thing is acceptable and is the norm which it really isn't I know. well let's let, exactly let's jump forward now um because i say the enemies of equality whether it's uh, gender equality whether it's lgbt equality race equality whatever they never give up they never go away uh, they're, they're brilliantly funded, often funded from from uh, America and the evangelical far right, mm-hmm. um, not only from America. Um, their language becomes much more subtle, their attacks much more subtle. Up in Birmingham, there two schools, uh, Anderton Park School in particular, the head teacher, uh, Sarah Hewitt-Clarkson, asked the local authority to get an injunction because there were protests outside the school against the inclusion of LGBT relations Mm. in relationship education. It's called inclusive relationship education. There were protests outside the school, and it went on. Now, they gained an injunction, and I went up for uh, one day of the hearing where the school and the council were seeking a permanent injunction. And to hear lawyers, senior lawyers, QCs, refer to LGBT as if it was a danger, a threat to children, to pupils. To hear a teacher 
head teacher have to explain why she bought LGBT books and brought them into the school. It reminded me of 32 years ago when they brought forward the first anti-gay law in 100 years called Clause 28, Section 28. Mm. Um, And when they brought that law in, they brought it in and they said, we're protecting children from the promotion of homosexuality. Um, A a, a terrible argument because, first of all, there was no promotion of homosexuality. You can't promote sexuality. I live in a predominantly heterosexual world. I'm 69 years old. If heterosexuality throughout my life with advertising books, everything around me promoting homosexuality according to them can't win me then a tiny minority is going to have absolutely no impact. But that argument, throw that away. But it suggests that there's something negative and dirty and threatening about LGBT and there isn't. What's negative and dirty and threatening is discrimination, inequality, and ignorance. Yeah. And so, so what those demonstrations up there uh, just remind me that our enemy, our enemies don't go away. Yeah. Um, they're there. They're still here. I think. I think in the time of social media, there's almost a, a boom in the ignorance part of that, and 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 the almost willful ignorance. Um, uh, just to use an example, I, I did a tweet today just in response to something because there was a thing last night that was saying how, how Katy Perry has been brought on as an ambassador for the British Asian uh, Foundation. And I looked at that and thought, that seems odd. But then I looked into it and they've got loads of amazing ambassadors like Connie Huck, um, just many, many British Asians in there as well. So I just did a tweet saying... This seems a bit misleading. Mm-hmm. The the people who think like me are right to be a bit. Why are you picking a white American to be an ambassador here? But here's kind of the full story. Here's the behind the thing. Mm-hmm. And I had people furious at me as if I was defending something because the excitement was to get angry at a headline. And it's similar with the protests at a school. Is people? I saw people talking about that online, saying, "Well, they shouldn't be talked about sex at such a young age." It's like, no one was talking about teaching them about sex. They were teaching them about relationships in the same way. Exactly. They, it's not to say they're not old enough to learn heterosexual sex, but we're going to teach them about homosexual sex. It's like, no, that wasn't, that wasn't what was going on. Yet the outrage, it's enough to say, well, if that's what they're doing, then I'm going to be on the street protesting. Yes. And, uh, and in, in the end, um, if somebody stood up and said... They're saying that it's okay if you're a Muslim uh, to have two wives. We've got to stop that. Would would that be tolerated? Would we would we say um, that they're going to teach uh, uh, inclusive religious education, but not certain other religions? Would we tolerate that? Of course not, because mm. the concept of equality means that we deal we we include and we talk about the multiplicity of choices that yeah. there are. But more importantly, when you're educating, you're empowering children and pupils so that the world in which they live in, uh, they are protected. They are not abused. Like children like me, like I was abused. And and I had to suffer that abuse and uh, and didn't, couldn't find the words um, to, to say to my parents or people around me what what that young docker had done to me when I was seven years old and then what subsequently occurred to me as I detail in, in, in the book during, yeah. my, during my teens. Um, I want every child to be able to find the vocabulary, to find the confidence to say what happens to them 
and for them to be believed. And I came from that period where we were told kids should be seen and not heard. Yeah. So empower young people. Don't hobble them through life so that uh, they can never fully defend themselves and know what their rights are. 100%. Um, you, you kind of spoke of the, of the strength of your sexuality in that in the growing up in a largely heterosexual climate, that wasn't enough to, to hamper you, to, to hold you back, therefore it can't be influenced in such a way. To look back to, to when you grew up in this area, um, houses away from where you are mm. now... Um, and we can hear the boats in the background. Yeah. Now, we're on the river, and, you know, I'm just looking out of my window and there's two river boats going up. Uh, sun is just sat over to the left, and it'll, a little later it'll be a wonderful sunset just over to the right. Yeah. But when I was a kid... The noise and the sound on this river with boats and ships all hooting and tooting because they wanted to get over onto the docks so that they could unload and get back out to sea. Uh, the barges being shipped up and down, the dockers, the stevedores, the cranes. It was incredible. And when I stand here, that's what I see. That, 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 that amazing community and the community of the docks and the and the fun, and you have to remember the fun because otherwise you can't cope yeah. with with the the dark things that that were done to you. And that was the interesting thing for me, Pip. That I, because I knew at an early age, very early age, that I was different. That I was attracted to other boys, uh, and, and before that man um, abused me. And at one point, I thought, is it on my forehead? Can people see it on my forehead so mm. that they know they can come and just use me and I, and I won't tell anyone and uh and and and, and so it it was strange in, in this hugely predominantly heterosexual area the docks but then there was always always a a, a, line, a kind of faint uh, attraction of what was going on in the pubs there were always little drag pubs around yeah. the east end and, yes. and blue clench's shop that i worked in as a kid she used to, she used to call me nobby i never knew why she called me nobby and she'd say <laughs> nobby now when you cycle um it was on the paper round when you cycle past that city arms you you go past there fast and of course immediately as a kid you think oh what goes on in the city yeah. arms and i remember i parked the bicycle against the pub wall stood up on the saddle, looked into the pub window, and I just thought, oh, it's just people who look like my Aunt Eileen. And what I didn't know was it was mainly drag queens in there. Beautiful, yeah. And again, that must have been a beautifully reassuring thing as those realisations came about, because it's easy for someone of my generation, for example, to sit here in these continually progressively liberal times for such things. Again, still fights to be fought, yes. but, but, you know, huge progression particularly in recent years um and think oh it must have been tough um catholic upbringing in the 50s and 60s not really any public homosexual uh, role models or figures but what is easy to overlook and forget is those exact years you're probably speaking about there the paper round years it wasn't only frowned upon or looked down upon, it was literally illegal, which is so hard to get your head around in this, like having been b b born into a world where that was never the case. It's such a hard thing to think that something that is intrinsic to your complete n nature, your first, not only is it frowned upon or not talked about, it's actively illegal. Yeah. How was that? And how do you kind of 
battle that as you're coming to terms with it well, all? First, first of all, you're right to say that there were no uh, role models. The, the only models you were given uh, were in the darker pages of the News of the World, invariably uh, vicars or, or priests, yeah. uh, caught generally uh, abusing boys. There were s- s- some sensational cases like Peter Wildblood. Um, so you only read about it in a negative way and in, and in films and, and television. It, we were depicted as, as, as camp, effeminate, weak little people. Mm. Um, but I think when you're surrounded by people telling you that your attraction to someone is criminal, that you will go to prison, that you could be blackmailed, you could be arrested, has a deep psychological uh, impact. You carry it like a bit of... Uh, if you can imagine in your gut, there's all this silt mm. deep, deep down there. And if you're not careful, over the years it builds up and it stops you. It stops you functioning. And um, even though in, in the s- 60s, when it, it was still illegal, it was illegal, only dec- partially decriminalised in 1967. Yes. I remember um, a young actor, that I was a young actor, and uh, and people were saying to me, you should not... Let people know what you are, because it will you, it will affect your career, and you will go to prison. Um, and we went out on tour when I was fifteen and a half, and I had my first experience of these smoky little back rooms in pubs uh, where it was all men, and it was exciting. Um, you then ended up late at night in, in places like the bus stations, sat there stirring your coffee and listening to the tales, the, the horrific tales. And the more naive you were, the more they wanted your eyes to pop open mm-hmm. about the arrests and the beatings and, 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 the, and the, uh, the queens and the prostitutes would battle with one another for the most outrageous stories. Um, uh, and so you took comfort in being in a small space like those bars in places like Blackpool and Manchester and Leeds. But you knew that once you stepped outside that door, you you were at risk. You mm. you might be blackmailed. You could be blackmailed into sex. Uh, you you could be beaten up. And equally, you could be arrested if you said to someone, you know, I really like you. Because they arrested you for, it was called uh, soliciting, uh, procuring uh, or soliciting for an immoral purpose. Mm. Um, well, there was an amazing f- film about it. Was it called The Victim? I the think Victim. It was. That yeah. was the first that, With that painted the homosexual um, character as... As, as the victim, as the one attacked, rather than as the villain. And it, mm. was, it was hugely important in cinema and in entertainment at that point to have that, because it's... it's I, I talk about it all the time on the podcast, but I'm a big believer that there's a certain area of society who will listen to a progressive lecture or, or a speech being given or read an article, but there's a whole different area that will ignore that, whereas if you can tell those stories through entertainment that's when you can get through to those people. And exactly. That, it felt like it just... I, I, I saw it a while back at the, um, at the Dulwich um, Gallery or Museum, and, yeah, it felt hugely important to, mm. to be get, telling that story, because it was. It was exactly that of the fear of blackmail, yeah. the fact that you will be bl- bl- blackmailed, and that can be just cr- crippling mentally and physically and, and financially, obviously. And, 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 and you... You saw people because they, these cases were reported. They were given yeah. huge space, um, and uh, and so even when they de- partially decriminalised in 1967, and I was 16, by that time I'd set up a relationship with a um, a boy who was I say a boy because we were young boys. I was 16, he was 24, um, 
uh, and we ended up being together for nine years. But he said to me, he said, we have to have two separate rooms mm. uh, or wherever we share, two separate beds. You have to tell people you're my cousin. That's why we're sharing. Um, because the police could knock on your door yeah. at any time because I was 16 and he was 24 and the age of consent was 21. Right. And people will now hear that helicopter going above and that's often the troop carriers. Right. They, they come all the way up here along the river and up towards Hyde Park. Yeah. Um, and so the discrimination didn't really change in uh, after 1967. Well, that's one of the things, again, with history and with dates, it's easy to to look at 1967 and go, oh, it all changed then. It yeah. was it was the well, breakthrough. And it's important, of course, but purely the fact that the first gay kiss came 20 years l- later, later on TV, that's an illustration of yes. how, how slow a process it was. It wasn't a, it's now decriminalised, therefore everyone's okay and everyone's safe, because there was still uh, generation after generation who'd been brought up with it being illegal. And to be blunt, there were politicians, police officers, all sorts of people who had had their whole career with it being a crime. So a change on paper isn't a change in mindset. Mm. So what relief did you feel at that time and how much was it, uh, yeah, a gradual process rather than a a celebration? It was both, actually. It was was gradual because actually, as a young person, gradually you realise what the problems are. Yeah. It was celebration because we had bars, we had clubs to go to. I remember the first club I went to um, when I was 15 and a half, so just before the decriminalisation, and it was called La Douce in Darbley Street, just off um, Berwick Street in Soho. And every time I go past there, I remember the excitement of when I went down those stairs and went through that second door, and I deal with all of this and and that time of the 60s and the 70s of hidden gay London. It's there in the book. Um, And I went down the stairs and went through, and my heart catapulted out of my chest because there were young, young men my own age dancing cheek to cheek and nobody turned an eye, and I spotted a few faces that I knew from stage school that I because I, I was then a young actor. And so because we had those bars and clubs where we could seek refuge and be yeah. ourselves, you didn't realise the enormity of the criminal law until it, it suddenly hit you or a friend mm. uh, or you were beaten up uh, because you might be near a public toilet or a cruising area and you knew you couldn't go you couldn't go to the police because they would figure out why you were there. Yeah. Um, and we rode, interestingly, on that kind of, we've got our pubs, we've got our clubs, right the way through into the early 80s when AIDS and HIV hit our community and the places of refuge that we could go to, we could go to no longer. Mm. Um, and that was the unforgivable thing because it was at that precise moment when the Thatcher government decided to bring in that anti-lesbian and gay law. Yeah. The first time in 100 years, and they brought it in against a community of primarily gay and bisexual men and, and others, absolutely right uh, to say, were affected by the virus. Um, and instead of supporting us uh, and giving us hope and comfort, uh, they brought a hammer blow onto mm. our community to drive us underground uh, because some local authorities were beginning to positively help uh, uh, lesbian, gay and bisexual communities. Uh, and it was that 
shift where I think Section 28, this anti-gay law, made us realise that we had no equality whatsoever. Yeah. We could be sacked from our jobs. We could be kicked out of our homes. We could be kicked, de- denied flats, denied goods and services. People could discriminate you against you solely on the basis that they thought you might be lesbian, gay or bisexual and you had absolutely no redress in law whatsoever and that Section 28 woke us up. Mm. And I think it was, the, it was the straw that broke the camel's back because of the fights that we were having trying to support our community, uh, watching our friends, members of our family die and die sometimes a, a death which was also faced by stigmatisation uh, and hatred. Uh, and so that was when we, ca- we realised that we had no rights, uh, that final moment when we thought, you want to fight We'll give you a fight. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, if it feels like it's a, it was, it was the ultimate snake on the snakes and ladders board. That there'd been such a fight for so long, and then suddenly those who had been resisting the fight had the perfect tool, the yes. perfect thing to say. Well, no, we were right all along. I, we never wanted to accept this, and now here's our reason. We can profit essentially off of the fear and off of the yes. panic and off of the, the the outrage and 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 put you back in your box put you back where you belong and the, the, report, tremendous. the, the reporting of it uh, was incredible britain was under threat for, uh, from gays some people not only vicars but some people were saying it's aids is the wrath of god the, the chief constable of greater manchester james anderton mm. who said that he used to speak frequently with god I wouldn't like his phone bill, um, but uh, said said that, and he said that gay men were swirling around in a cesspit of their own making, and this was reported. Um, and so, was it any wonder that when I went into that show in 1987, that there were calls, there were questions in Parliament as to mm-hmm. why there, with AIDS and HIV, there was a gay man, a homosexual, going into this family show where children could see it because it was on before 8 o'clock at night. And then, as the storyline develops, there were calls for the show to be taken off or the characters to be axed. And the fact that we continued with it, and it's something you said earlier when we talked about the film The Victim, that the fact that we were going into people's homes and they mm. knew Albert Square and they knew Wolford and they knew Dot and Arthur Fowler and Pauline Fowler and that pub, and the fact that I was there... And it was three months before they even knew Colin was gay and met his partner, that we were going into people's homes and people felt comfortable with us. And there was a brilliant letter I got after the first kiss, the outrage and the letters from the moral campaigners. Um, And this woman wrote to me and said that she'd watched the Sunday afternoon repeat of the show. It used to be repeated Sunday afternoon. And she said, my two sons, the nine-year-old said to me, why is Colin kissing Barry? And she said, I said to him, well, as mummy loves daddy, so Colin loves Barry. And that was when I knew why they hated us, the tabloids and the Mm. right-wingers, because we were quietly undermining their narrow view of life and the world and people and love. And they didn't like it, and we were getting through yeah, we were getting through. And again, it's the beauty that you were allowed to become their friend first. Yes, before they found Clever. out. Rather than this simple thing, there's 
it seems like an odd comparison, but it was a song last year. It was one of the biggest songs of the year. It's called, it's called Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. And I think it's one of the most important songs in recent history because it was, it was a rap and country song and it got in the country chart. It got to number one. There was a big campaign because it was kept off of the country chart originally and there was arguments, well, it's only because this, this young man's black. It's as country as anything else. So it was all of this, all back and forth, and then it got to number one in the country chart and the rap chart and then the billboard chart. And after that, Lil Nas X came out as bisexual. Oh my god! So he and and yes. and I come from the hip like from the rap world, and that's an area that has still had problems with 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 homophobia, mm. as has country. So it felt beautiful that he he timed it to become their absolute champion, the number one person in their industry at that time, and then say, by the way, I'm gay. So Brilliant. so he's befriended them already, and he, he, exactly the same. Rather than throwing. Uh, uh, moment straight yeah. onto the screen in East Enders. They've gone. Here's, here's Colin. Yeah, here's exactly. Your mate. Here he is. Um, and, and and the other way around is sensational. Somebody recently said to me in the publishing world because I'm new uh, to, to writing books. I've I've, uh, I've written a, a couple of plays before. Yeah. And somebody said to me. He said, Michael, I'm thinking of giving up publishing. I want to get involved. He said because of your story, I want to get involved. In, in activism, I want to get get involved in doing that. And I said, I said, you know what? It's the best way you can get involved in activism is by becoming successful at what you do, mm. because you then present yourself to others. Uh, I said, you become a role model. You become a peer. I said, and, and actually, at some point, you can use your clout and your voice when others need it. You add it to others. And the fact that you're in the publishing world instead yeah. of the world of activism or politics in a strange way gives your voice a greater volume yeah. and a bigger resonance. Yeah. And I'm pleased to say he took my advice uh, and he recently got wonderful promotion in another company. Amazing. And, um, and I hope he listens. I should, I should tell him to listen yes, to this. Yes, I love that. I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm bringing in all the pop culture references now, but there's <laughs> a, a song by a band called The Idols, and it has a wonderful line of, the best way to scare a Tory is to read and get rich. And again, I think it's just a wonderful sum up and rather than necessarily rallying against those who you see as, as your enemy, become their equal, overtake them, show that there's other options in these in these things. But, I mean, I want to talk about EastEnders a little more and Colin because, mm. again, it's easy to look back or to even t to look on and say, oh, it was such an important role, an important role for, for the LGBT plus scene at the time and world. But that also allows you to dehumanise you, the individual, who had to make that choice. And there would have been, there must have been pressures there to think, this is important, but am I the person to do it? Am I the person to take these stones thrown at me? Am I the person to take these threats and this abuse? How was that, weighing that, that up at the time? Your, maybe your personal sacrifices that would come with the greater good, essentially. You're, you're right to highlight that because a lot of what... Before I took the job, uh, I, I knew the tabloids would go for me. I didn't think they'd go for Paul, uh, who then we'd been together about two and a half years and, and we, we were together for 31 years. Um, 
he sadly died five and a half years ago. Um, I didn't think they'd go for him. I was, I was so naive. Um, and I said when they offered me the job, I've got to ask Paul, I've got to ask my mum and dad. And there was a price to pay. He, you know, the, the, the announcement of me in the show before I was even on screen was Eastbenders, the headline, front page mm. of The Sun. Um, and then there were other uh, really, uh, there was some nasty reporting. And so I just got on with the job because I thought, okay, it's a job. But it had a real, stra- it put a real strain on my relationship with Paul. We nearly split up over it because I was becoming obsessive about what I was doing. And then when this anti-gay law, Section 28, came in, uh, we'd just come back from holiday in in, in uh, America where we Paul and I always used to mend our ways together on holiday. It was brilliant. He, he loved he, he loved a good time. Um, he loved, loved fun, as I say in, in the dedication uh, of the book to him, for Paul, the man who put the F in fun. Um, and we came back from this wonderful holiday and I read that there was going to be a campaign, a march against this uh, Section 28. Right, yeah. And I didn't even ask him. I didn't ask anyone. I just knew I had to be on this march. I knew. I thought, I thought you can't be on screen playing this important gay character and people know that you're openly gay and not be on that march. And I knew if I didn't go on that march, I would never be able to look myself in the face again. And so I went on that. There's a, a lovely story about how June Brown, who plays Dot, managed to get me time off so I could go. Um, but often I would think, why is it me that I've got to do it again? And then the other voice in your head says, come on, do it. Um, and that, and so, so it became a lot easier um, working around w- with people like Ian McKellen and the wonderful activist um, Lisa Power, Jenny Wilson, Duncan Campbell, even Matthew Paris, the, the Times uh, writer, um, joined us when we were setting up Stonewall. Uh, and it became, it, it became a bit easier because you had that sense of solidarity. Um, but, you know, if I'm honest, even now I, when there's an issue, something might be happening in this country, there might be still, well, there is still the reluctance to, to roll out PrEP as it should be mm-hmm. rolled out. And, and you know you're working with THT and uh, AIDS frontliners and all of that. You've got to get up there in Parliament and raise the issue. And every so often you think, oh, I wish I could sit back and watch somebody else do it. And then yeah. you think, no, come on. That's, that's why you have a voice. And if you don't lose it, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm. Um, but it was difficult. And for Paul to be outed to his family and his friends in the centre pages of the news of the world was awful. And, and, and I, I will never know the collateral damage that was done to my nieces and nephews uh, or, or, or my brothers because they never came to me and said, oh, this has been said in the playground to my kids because they were yeah. cashmans. Yeah. But, you know, if there's a price to pay in my terms... It's a, it's a price worth paying. But then uh, later on, again, as I, as I write about, because it's so important, I had to make decisions about stepping back from Stonewall, uh, yeah. about knowing that there are, t- there are times 
to let go. And if you have the courage to let go, then something grows in a brilliant way beyond your, your, your imagining. Uh, and also I had to make decisions about saving uh, my relationship and some may argue saving my sanity. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's such a, a, a powerful story in that it feels like some of the, the horror and tragedy in, 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 in the early parts of your life in particular, because it is, again, you can look at, you know, plucked out of school to enter show business. Mm. It could look like a dream scenario, yeah. but it is a story that is 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 also rife with exploitation and, as you've said, to be blunt, abuse. Mm. Um, but it feels like maybe the fact that you had the strength to get through these horrific things and still f- fight and still feel it was your place to to stand in these fights that you maybe hadn't picked or hadn't started, it feels like getting through those things in early life strengthened you and gave you that resolve to say, no, I would rather I take this than someone else. I know that I can survive this. So I would rather I'm at the front of this protest Mm. than someone who maybe could take more of a hit. And whether that be members of your family or loved ones, you know, I'd rather take this on their behalf. I hadn't hadn't thought of that, but I think think you're right that that gaining that resilience to... uh, to say, right, I'll go forward, I, I will be... Because you don't use these words to yourself, but, but that you will be a survivor and, and, and knowing, actually knowing that you can take the hit. Yeah. But in a strange way, and I had this experience right, brought right home to me after Paul died when I went through an awful time. And I'm not saying I don't go through those awful times. Now I do. We all battle with, with what we have to deal with in life. And I, I, I was... I was away working, I was in New York and I was going through a crisis and I managed to get in touch with a friend of mine who who was a counsellor, Beachy, brilliant counsellor. He helped people like Elton get rid of the the, the, the addiction to booze and, and, and drugs. And, and Beachy in three text messages got it. He said, you don't like the person you see in the mirror, do you? Mm. And, 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 I, and he said, go and look, go in the bathroom, look at that person in the mirror and see the person that other people see. And it was then, I think, I realised that that's why I could fight for other people, because I didn't believe I was worth fighting for. Right. And I think that comes from all of those experiences uh, as a child and as a teenager, and that awful experience I had uh, at that stage school that I went to, where my confidence and everything was stripped away. It, 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 it has consequences. Uh, but my dad actually once said, and that's a lovely story about him, that after I left the, uh, the EastEnders, I, I did a documentary about discrimination against lesbians and gay men and where it came from. I called it A Kiss is Just a Kiss. Mm. And, um, uh, and it went out, and here my mum, as they always used to do, whether I had a tiny part or fronting a documentary, phoned up and they said, proud of you, son, proud of you. And then the next day he rang in the morning, and, and he said about how he was proud and he'd been to his pub and they'd given him a pint. And he said, so I'm proud of you. I said, yeah, you, you told me that last night. And, and then he said, he said, and I want to tell you. And his voice started to quake. He said, that I love you. I love you, son. And I nearly, nearly broke down. I said, yeah, I, lo- I love you too, Dad. And he said, right, I'm going back 
get that pint that the, the, uh, the governor put on the bar before he takes it back. And I knew, actually, that that was the moment I became my father's son, that he realised that if he'd been gay and he'd had exactly the same opportunities and the same chances, he would have done exactly the same. Mm. Um, and I'm so proud of that. I'm proud that it happened. I, I, I learned about my father as a real man because of his friendship and his relationship with Paul. Um, yeah. Because if you think about it, my dad had four sons, so he never thought he was going to get a son-in-law. Yeah. And I gave him the perfect <laughs> son-in-law who loved football, loved sport, uh, loved politics, and they could talk about football until the cows came home, whereas it bored me silly. But but that, I mean, that's what I mean about the complexity of life and how, for me, you can so often find that tender part of you that you've shut away and denied uh, only when you have the courage to love and the courage to own up to the fact that you can be loved, mm. that you deserve to be loved and that you don't deserve, as you think, to be abused. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, it's a beautiful story because, again, it's that moment of... And it relates to, to Paul as, as well there. There's your dad as much as I'm sure he reveled in it, but he has to love his sons. That's, that's, that's his fatherly duty. No. He didn't have to love Paul. No. So that's the beautiful thing there, to yes. choose that. And, and again, yes. that moment of that phone call from the pub, that's that moment of that recognition for you that this isn't simply that I have to love my sons. This is the real, look, yeah. I love you. It, you know, it feels so powerful on both of those counts and, and there. Also, that it's, it's not just the... The responsibility to love. No. It's, and, it's the choice to love. He came from that generation. Um, uh, you know, a tough working class man, uh, twice a prisoner of war, released by the Italians, mm. captured by the Germans, uh, where men didn't express mm. love to one another unless they were drunk. And you yeah. certainly didn't to your sons because your sons had to be tough like you. Mm -hmm. You, When I was born, like my other brothers, our names were put down at the... Port Labour Board, so that we would follow him into the docks. Um, so that declaration of love, I, I'd never heard him say that before. Um, and the fact that it came through that relationship with Paul was incredible. Yeah, I love that. So, so can we go back to the, the founding of, of Stonewall? You co-founded it with Ian McKellen, and it was, it was in response to Section 28 of the, of the, of the Local Government Act, and... How did that feel to say that we have to, essentially, we have to organise? It's not enough to be to be vocal. We have to organise because, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but I don't think it is. Our enemy is organised. Our yes. enemy is incredibly organised. So yeah. we can't simply protest or, or speak. We need to have that further level of, of unity and organisation to battle this. And that was exactly what it was, unity and organisation. And we certainly didn't have unity. Mm. When we set up Stonewall, um, we were attacked from other activists. Uh, we were attacked from sections of the lesbian and gay media as to who did we think we were, who did we represent. And my, my arrogant answer was we represent ourselves and we're going to try and achieve equality. And if other, if other people want to opt into it, great. If they don't, fine. Um, Organising was difficult. It took us 
nearly a year to get the right people together. Some people said no, because our remit was you had to be openly lesbian, gay or bisexual. You couldn't be in the closet mm-hmm. um, because we would present ourselves as representing the issues. And what we'd learnt during the campaign against Section 28 was that there were politicians who were willing to listen and willing to listen to an argument. So we knew that there, was a, there, there were arguments to, to be won. But the attacks came because they said, you should be a membership organisation. And, and what we did know, because we'd seen it with other membership organisations, was how they'd imploded by mm. serving the different wings of their membership rather than serving and servicing the arguments for change uh, and equality. And we launched it here in 1989, a year after uh, Section 28 became law, on Ian's Terrace overlooking the Thames. And then we had to raise money uh, because we knew we couldn't get any public money for it, that Section 28 forbid that. Um, So we had to do what we did best, which was to put on a show. And we Mm. we put on an amazing benefit of the powerful play Bent by Martin Sherman uh, about the incarceration uh, of um, not only homosexuals but but Jews, gypsies um, and others by the the Nazis and working them to death. It's a a a great play about identity and liberation. And we did that. We put it on for one night. Amazing cast with Rafe Fiennes, Alex Jennings, Ian Charlson, the wonderful Ian Charlson. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And in one night... In 1989, we raised, uh, we made £30,000 profit. And I went back to Cameron McIntosh. It's in the book, so I won't give it away. (laughs) And Cameron uh, jumped up and and supported us in in a brilliant way. And and that gave us the money to hire a member of staff because we said it's going to be a professional organisation, staffed. Yeah. Um, and, um, And we had a tiny little office about the size of a toilet in um, Strutton Ground, uh, just in in Victoria, because we had to have an SW1 address so that the politicians took us seriously and so that we could get into the House of Commons to lobby and to make sure another Section 28 never happened again. Yeah, and it's it's, it's such a powerful thing, that that coming together. And as you said, the the people having to be out and and open, because... All my family is South London, and I remember that period where there was none of my family, certainly not now, but certainly not in my upbringing, do I remember ever being homophobic or ever having anything mm-hmm. like that. But it was that time where it was often easier to ignore it. And when you look yes. at people like the Pet Shop Boys and George Michael, all these people, absolutely the biggest acts in, 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 in the country and, and in the world, and they had to... You, when they supported Stonewall, joined Stonewall, did gigs with you guys, all these amazing things, it meant that those who could selectively ignore it could no longer selectively ignore it. It's exactly. like the, these, your idols are homosexual. Well, and the Deal fa- with it. And the, <laughs> fact, the fact that you had Ian, who, um, Ian wasn't a big movie star then, yeah. but was considered the greatest, and well, is the greatest Shakespearean actor of his generation then. So you had Shakespeare and Soap, me yeah. and Ian doing it. And then, and, and there's a wonderful story in the book how I managed to get David Hockney to support us, yes. and then Elton John and Billy Connolly. Um, 
And and it was the celebrity, the, gla- the celebrity glamour, got Stonewall's name up there, got the issue up there, and so when we went. Because this was how we made money, you know, doing these benefits, the annual equality show that we started the, the, the Palladium and then took to the Royal Albert Hall. Um, it meant that they couldn't ignore the issue. They couldn't ignore us. Uh, and the fact that it had celebrity around it meant that politicians and the media, the tabloids, yeah. were attracted to it. Um, uh, and, um, and, and I look back with... Such amusement and fondness for those artists who didn't hesitate, as you said, like the Pet Shop Boys, Paul O'Grady up there, Jason Donovan. Well, I, I, I always make my notes, and I started to make a bit of a list, and I had to stop because I had I had the Pet Shop Boys, Pinter, Judy Dench, Stephen Fry, Patrick Stewart, Gary Oldman, just Antonio Banderas, who had an amazing film recently called Pain and Glory that's a beautifully mm. delicate telling of the development of of a gay relationship and yes. the, the closetedness of it versus, or the, or the knock-on effect of the closetedness of it and things like that. Beautiful story. W- wonderfully powerful. And again, that list of people was just, it was endless and it was and wonderful. Then, and, and, and again, Judy as you Dench, say, Keith, Dame Peggy Ashcroft. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's amazing, but it made it unavoidable and that's the beauty of it. It made it something that people couldn't just turn away from and ignore because it was people in every area of th- their lives. If you're a fan of theatre, there would be your favourite people from theatre. If you're a fan of TV, TV, radio, radio, everywhere, it would say, no, we are adding to the, r- the richness of your life yeah. directly. And, you know? and, and, and Pip, the, the, the great thing was a lot of these people weren't lesbian, gay or bisexual, yeah. um, but they made a connection with you cannot deny equality to these people because it affects me. Yeah. And that is the power of standing up for the rights of others because you know that if you want to look at it selfishly, if you allow somebody else's rights to go or you barter them away, eventually, we need to look back no further than the 1930s, yeah. eventually your rights will go. And the, and the ability to imagine what if that were me, what if that were my child, what if that were my mother, my father, whatever... If it was not right for them, how can it be right for anybody else? And that was the powerful signal. And, and one show we did, everything had to be written or performed. That was written or, or, or uh, everything that was performed had to be written or composed by a lesbian, a gay man, or a bisexual. Yeah. Because we were making a statement that if you had this section twenty-eight, you could potentially lose all of this in a yeah. local authority concert hall theatre. So we had to write and get permission. Uh, again, there's some lovely stories that I use in the book, but one I remember fondly was Leonard Bernstein. We wanted to do a number from West Side Story, and Leonard Bernstein wrote back and said, yeah, I'm proud of that bisexual period of my life. By that time, he was married and doing other things, but the association um, was absolutely glorious. Um, Sadly, we couldn't do the number, uh, because of the response from the lyricist, and I'll have to let people uh, read about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so can we talk about your choice to become an MEP, to to continue fighting, again, to fight, uh, as we said, the, 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 the thing with Stonewall was it was the realisation that we need more than just the people at the front. We need the organisation, we need the people in those rooms. It's great to have these events that have the Pet Shop Boys and George Michael and all the glamour, 
but it needs more than that. You needed to raise that 30,000 to have an employee. Yeah. And was that kind of the realisation? It was like, right, we need, we don't just need the front line, we need the back line as well. We need people in Parliament, in 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 these meetings, in these rooms, representing us. But that wasn't a, a, a conscious thought, mm-hmm. um, because Stonewall's approach was the we consider LGBT rights high profile, high agenda rights. Uh, they're human rights. Um, and so, therefore, if a party considers itself a serious political party, it has to address those mm-hmm. rights. And there weren't many, but hardly anyone out in, in politics. Uh, and Stonewall's other way was not only through the political process, but taking cases through the courts to get to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg and working with some amazing individuals. But for me, I never thought I'd go into politics. I... I left my education really finished at the age of 12. Mm. When I left school, I learned, you know, I knew how to t- tap dance, sing, act, impersonate. Um, Arguably uh, key skills for a politician. Absolutely, <laughs> especially the impersonate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, and, and so when later um, I, I was asked by a, a Margaret McDonough, who she was the London organiser. I, I was a member of the Labour Party, London regional organiser. Margaret subsequently became the first woman general secretary of the Labour Party. Mm. And she said, you know, stand for the European Parliament. And I, uh, I said, Margaret, I'm sanding the floor at the moment in the basement. She said, well, that doesn't mean anything. I said, no, Margaret, I, I, I can't. And Paul came in and I told him and he said, why not? He said, you'd be brilliant. Uh, and I thought about it. And all of the uh, the lack of confidence that was brewing away in there, haven't completed my education, didn't go to university, could I do it? And they convinced me I could, and I ran for it. And the first time I ran for it, I didn't get the nomination in the party. And then the next time I ran for it, and I got it, and the campaign was difficult. The campaign was nasty internally. Um, and when I was elected, Paul was with me, and I was so proud because it, he'd, he was a pivotal part of it. And I became the first openly gay man to be elected as a member of the European Parliament for the United Kingdom and went there to, do, to be enabled and given the privilege to do some amazing things around equality. Yeah. And equality in those countries like Bulgaria and Romania and Poland and Lithuania, Cyprus, all of those countries that were joining uh, and working on the principle that Europe is a is a project which is based on fundamental human rights and the, and the defence of those rights. And so while I was there, I, I was able to do a lot, um, able to work with Stonewall, uh, and then we reignited the um, lesbian and gay intergroup, which is like a cross-party group, and it became the single biggest cross-party group in the in the Parliament. And only this week... Somebody sent me a photograph on WhatsApp saying, I hope you feel that your legacy is okay. Today is the inaugural meeting of the new LGBT intergroup and in this huge meeting room, it's standing room only. Amazing. Uh, And they had Commissioner, uh, the Maltese Commissioner, Helena Daly, a great campaigner, there to give them their inaugural speech. Um, So, yeah, I'm a proud European and I'm... Desperately sad that Britain's taken the decision it has. Mm. Um, but we've got to 
look at this decision carefully and have the courage to uh, re-examine it by winning the democratic argument again. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, one thing that jumped out to me was um, your requesting to your successful request for Tony Blair to to have the issue of civil partnerships included in the Queen's speech. <laughs> How was that? Because, again, it's those things that feel like you're really getting into the the the, the impenetrable, the, yeah, well, the, the so traditional and so out of reach. You're, you're going, no, this is all, it's for all of us. Well, I, by that time I was, I'd also, which was really unusual for a member of the European Parliament... Um, I served two years on the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party, the controlling, so-called controlling body of the, the, the party. Right. And then I was re-elected uh, as a member of the... as a politician. It hadn't happened before to a member of the European Parliament. And I saw... So I had access to, to Tony Blair uh, on at least a monthly basis through those meetings, and I could raise any issue, and indeed other cabinet ministers there... And I worked closely with Stonewall because we were still progressing the equality agenda in, in the UK. And uh, 97, the Labour government, 98, an equal age of consent. And, and Tony Blair used the Parliament Act to override mm. the opposition of the House of Lords, which kicked it back at wow. least twice. And, and, uh, and, and so I saw my role working with Stonewall and my position in the party was to tell Tony um, opinions that he might not hear um, and, and, to, and to unblock. I always say in politics, you've got to consider yourself that all you are is you're a plumber. Yeah. You're there to remove the blockage to make sure everything flows much better and much more effectively yeah. and efficiently. And so I, used, so I went in on numerous occasions, but there's one that isn't in the book, um, but, but the civil partnerships, Angela said to me, Angela Mason from Stonewall, I, I need you to raise this with the Prime Minister. And, and there's a lovely bit where we're sat together in, on the terrace of the garden in um, Number 10 Downing Street and the traffic droning past. Uh, and I ask him to, to bring civil partnerships forward. In, this was in July yeah. in, in the Queen's speech in November. Yeah. And he gave me a little wry smile, looked over to um, his political adviser, uh, Sally, and he said, we can do that, can't we? And she went, mm, yes. And he looked at me and he said, there you are, Michael, uh, next. I love it. And that was, and I, I, I was on cloud nine. But then there were other times when I had to say to him, like over uh, adoption when the Catholic Church and others were opposing uh, that, that they should consider uh, lesbian and gay men, bisexuals, uh, as adopted mm -hmm. parents. Consider, right? No one has the right to adopt uh, and so I, I raised it with, with with Tony Blair and I said I'm told that your office is part of the problem and he looked at me this is in an open meeting at the national executive and he looked at me and he said Michael first of all um, it's not my, my office I have no problem with this he said and there is only one thing to consider and that is the right of the child to the best adoptive parents I think the Catholic Church has got it wrong on this right. and the Catholic Church is out of touch with its laity. Mm. And, and, and so I, I was privileged in, in that, I had, uh, that I could use my position to raise issues with him that he might not otherwise 
here. And again, I, I outlined something in the book where I, I intervened and I think if I hadn't, he just would have found out about it that night in what they, they call the red boxes where you read well, the decisions that have been taken or you just need to sign them off. And he would have read about the issue that I raised with him at the end of the day when it was too late to change it. Yeah. Um, so I was, again, fortunate. Yeah, I love that. We're, we're at the hour mark, so I'll start to round things up. But I'd, 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 I'd love to hear a little about your choice. After all this, after a lifetime of, of battling and fighting and campaigning and activism, um, your choice after 20-plus tw- tw- years with Paul to, to have your civil partnership, to, to be allowed to make this official as, as, as such under the eyes of, yes. of, of society rather than simply within your four walls. How was that and how, how did that de- decision and moment come about? Well, what, before I actually answer that, I, I, the great thing about equality is being able to opt out, yeah. being able to say, no, I don't want a civil partnership. I don't want, I don't want a marriage. Um, I want to create my own ghetto. I've always said to have the choice to do something is crucial. When um, Paul organised it, he was a brilliant organiser. Mm. Little did I know when Barbara Windsor introduced us all those years before that this man would organise my life and turn me around, make me another person and, a, I think, a better person. And um, so we decided we were going to have our civil partnership and, uh, and we put all the things into play uh, as people will read in the book, there was a, a time when I thought, this isn't going to happen, this isn't going to happen. All our guests were assembled. I thought, it's not going to happen. But I can say to, to people, never underestimate the power, the absolute power of being able to say in public, this is the person I love and this is the person I'm committing my life to. And we did that in public. And my only sadness was that my parents weren't around to see it. Mm. If, if my dad had been, he probably would have got drunk and appeared as an old lady in the, uh, in, in, at the drink celebration afterwards. He was always fond of, of doing that. <laughs> um, and our families were there, our friends were there. And it was such a powerful day. And later on during um, his battle with cancer, in this room, I was stood just behind him doing the ironing. He was sat on the sofa, couldn't keep his head up because it was a bad day with the chemotherapy. And I love to do ironing because, as Mo Molum uh, always says, she used to love filling the, the dishwasher and then emptying it. She said, because in politics, you never get to see if you finished anything. She said, whereas <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon, that was hers. Well, mine was ironing. I loved doing it. And I looked down at this beautiful man, 13 years younger than me, sat on the sofa. And I said, Paul, because by then... Um, same-sex marriage had come in. And I said, Paul, will you marry me? And he said, no, today's not a good day. <laughs> and so I continued ironing. And they went, hang on. I said, I'd just ask you if you'd marry me. And he said, and I said, today is not a good day. <laughs> so that was it. We had our, we had our civil partnership. And I, I think probably he was sat there battling with this chemotherapy, battling with this most aggressive of cancers, a cancer that they only saw one in every three million. And he probably thought, and on top of this, he thinks I'm going to organise our wedding. He must be joking. You're Um, not happy with the last party I threw for our our, our relationship. Exactly. I love that. So, 
I mean, it's, it's, it seems fair to discuss and, and, and talk about the, your choice to, to walk away from Stonewall and, and, and to move on from that. What was the reasoning behind that and how, how hard a, a decision was that to come to, I guess? The, the reasoning was quite complex. Uh, I've got an addictive personality and I, I now control it. But within addictive personality, you become obsessive. And so all of my free time, I was giving to Stonewall. And it was, and, and Paul at one point, because he was at that time uh, an actor, uh, he was out on tour with the Rocky Horror Show and he used to say, I wonder why I bothered to come home. Mm. You're not here. Uh, and it was affecting the relationship. And I also knew that I was holding the organisation back. Right. That it could develop in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was holding on to the old ways and I made my mind up that I had to let go. And even at the meeting where I announced my resignation, I was still battling with the other half of my ego that was saying, you can't go, because if you go, look, there's no, no one here who can take over. Um, and when I announced it and I came home and I told Paul, I didn't even tell him because I didn't want anyone to reason me out of it. Because I knew it needed a new chair. It needed a new leader. Angela Mason, a brilliant executive director, wanted to develop the, wanted to develop the organization in, in a different way. And so uh, um, Elaine, my deputy, she, she was then elected as, uh, as the chair. And, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. It freed me up. I could get on with other things. Uh, I could commit to Paul, commit to... Uh, the plays that I was doing and then into politics uh, and be a part of Stonewall without yeah. having to strangle it. Yeah. yeah. And to stand back and watch it grow in a way that I never imagined, in a brilliant way, was, was an amazing gift to receive. Yeah. I love that. So, I mean, we started the podcast talking of, of you standing on the street you grew up in and seeing your five-year-old self and having your book mm. in your hand and having that pride. How was it in, in 2014 to be made Baron Cashman of Limehouse in the London <laughs> borough of Tower Hamlets to be, and again, particularly somewhere that you loved, but again, I'd imagine for a good period of your life felt you would maybe never be accepted because of what you had to hide, yes. because of who you were and what you were. So to be able to have not only come out as that not only be accepted as that but to be celebrated and honored in such a way that must have been the ultimate kind of cap to 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 put on all of that on 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 that part of the journey well first of all there's a song from talk song trilogy not from talk song trilogy um i can't remember what but it's i am what i am yeah and i started singing I was what I was, <laughs> and what I was needs no excuses. I never thought it would happen to me. Yeah. It happened to others. And so I knew Paul and I were tipped. I was told early in the year it, it, that my name was going forward and told, you know, it wasn't a certainty. Um, and it was confirmed in the September, and I'm pleased it was, because it was bittersweet, because I went into the Lords uh, four days after Paul died. Mm-hmm. And on that, the, he died in the early hours of that Friday morning on the 24th of October. I was there with him throughout it all at the Royal Marsden Hospital. And even when we were finally told, 
he was still planning on how he might get to the get a, all of the necessary medical support to get him to the House of Lords to see me introduced uh, on the following Tuesday. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's a lovely video recording. They always do a video recording of, uh, of your introduction, as they call it. And there's a moment where I'm looking up, and I look up, and I see everyone there, my family, my friends, but there's no Paul. And my legs, start, I, I felt them starting to go. And then I thought of him, and in this video, a smile breaks out across my face, and I was okay. And the compassion and the kindness that I was shown during those days after Paul's death in the House of Lords shocked me. It was incredible, incredibly generous and warm and amazing. And so to kind of sum it up, Lord Cashman of Limehouse, who's got an amazing job, back where he was a little mudlark, a ragamuffin, where I was always up to mischief, the most amazing life without the one person that would make sense of it all, and that's Paul. But I don't wallow in self-pity. I battle with the daily little battles of him not being around, of wanting to share brilliant news with him and to share my fears. Um, but to have had 31 years um, with him is wonderful, and it'll set me up for whatever else I've got to do. Thank you so much for your time. As, as, as we said, I'll mention it in the intro and outro, but one of them, um, your book is out now, and uh, yeah, I highly re- I re- recommend it. What's the plan for, for, for what's next and what's ahead? Are you allowed to... Uh, it feels like completing something like this, such an amazing story, should now allow you to relax a little bit, to take I, some time off maybe, to take those holidays that, you know, from what I hear, Paul would have forced, and you might not... Do on your own so much. So Paul, Paul certainly would have forced that. He, <laughs> one of his great, because I was always worried about the future. You know, uh, he grew up in a poor, you know, poor background, and I used to think, well, we've got to think about the future. And he used to say, spend it, spend <laughs> it. Um, I do need. A, I'm looking forward to a lovely holiday, um, but my wonderful publishers, Bloomsbury, they want to keep me out there. I'm, I'll be doing. Um, book readings and signings. I'm doing a lot during LGBT History Month, February. And then I'll be off to places like Bristol, York, Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, Hay-on-Wye, doing those. And and being in virgin territory, it feels like a holiday as well. So, But but a a really nice moment to step back and um, enjoy what I've achieved. And you know what? I, I never thought I'd say that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Michael Cashman. Um, Amazing amazing his book one of them is amazing i hope i hope you don't mind it was in the or i hope michael doesn't mind i almost read it in the podcast but it was going in so many wonderful directions i didn't want to derail but when i got the pr pack for for this there was a quote um in there of so after after michael's partner paul sadly passed away um 
he was going through things at the flat and he discovered a, a letter he wrote to Paul back in 1983 and it's beautiful and I think you've already heard how beautifully he speaks of Paul um, and I just want to read this out to you before I go into the usual outro stuff I want to help you all I can and so the best I can do is to love you I will love you give you the knowledge that whatever happens to you whatever you do I will love you and give you the security of a relationship as long as you and I need it I hope that is forever but only time will tell. And we must not live for tomorrow, but for now, for today. All I'm trying to say in my confusing style is that whatever anyone thinks, feels or says about you, remember that you love someone. They love you. That is enviable. Not everyone experiences that. End of lecture. It's wonderful, you know. If you're hearing this part, you've stuck through. And I don't think you could have listened and not been massively moved by it. So please shout about it. Please spread the word. These ones that don't have, you know, a huge film star name like, I don't know, or comedian like a Carl Pilkington earlier this year or, I don't know, a Michael Fassbender. All of these huge names we've had on. These are the ones that need shouting about all the more. And this one really feels as if it does. If you enjoyed this I encourage you to go back and listen back into the archives and listen to the episode with Tom Robinson. A hell of a conversation. And uh, uh, another person who was fighting in a similar time and a similar era with alongside Michael Cashman. Um, great conversation. So head back and check that out. Um, Jack Sexsmith, a wrestler I had on um, who was, you know, a huge representative of the LGBT plus community. And he, he, there was a point where he donated, before he had to sadly stop wrestling, he donated a portion of his merch money to Stonewall. So that's another good one to go and listen to if this is, if this has moved you. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in guys. It's, oh, and the, the Jordan Gray episode, Tall Dark Friend, sorry. That's Jordan Gray's name. That's her, her two names so the tall dark friend episode is fantastic as well a real education to me um in the trans community um particularly a trans a woman growing up in my area of essex it's mind-blowing and inspirational so yeah a lot to go and get your teeth into thank you for tuning in and i will be back next week i might have two next week i think i might double up because yeah i'm jumping in and getting some recording done now so um yeah we shall see we shall see but for now shout this one from the rooftops and i will see you next week oh and and go and buy michael cashman's book one of them ignore all my plugs for my website or my patreon this week and just head straight and support michael and go and and catch him on 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 the road as he uh as he does readings and appearances all right i am actually going now i promise i'm in fact i'm typing my password into my my laptop so that I can email this over to Buddy Peace. So that's how b- b- Buddy Peace at I'm not going to tell you his email address. That's how close I am to ending this. It's over. I will see you all next week. Maybe twice. Maybe once. Who knows? If you want more, there's the Pod Bible podcast. I do that a bit. Ta ta.